Listen, I'm home by myself. My husband is not home. He's going to a wedding that I can no longer go to because it's in Missouri, which is full of COVID. So you know what? I'm enjoying my time by myself in my silent apartment without all the yelling on the Xbox over there. Is there no yelling at the Xbox because you've stopped playing Xbox? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. It's a medical education podcast where medical students teach each other about emergency medicine. My name's Armand. I'm a fourth year medical student going into EM, and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts, Abby and Kyle. Good evening, everyone. My name is Abby. I'm a fourth year medical student with Armand, and I'm going into EM. Hello, my name is Kyle, and I'm also a fourth year medical student going into EM. And welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, where our host doesn't know how to do a podcast intro properly the first time. That's right. I'm going to edit it. So uh, don't worry, everybody. I haven't really talked to you guys in a while. How are you guys? I am so, so tired for no good reason. That's the energy we want, really. (laughs) I am so much enthusiasm, but so little energy. Good. How are you, Kyle? I have a lot of energy, but so little enthusiasm. So We make an excellent pair. You guys make one person. Together we make one complete (laughs) medical student. Hey, Abby, do you, to, do you want to apply to one residency program between the two of us? We'll yeah, sure, let's do it. We'll switch shift. It's not couples matching. It's one person matching. It's just two people <laughs> that have to go together. Otherwise, they really fail as a human yeah. being. There you go. Uh, speaking of, I made my list today and emailed it to the powers that be. I have a list that went from 256 programs down to 83, and we still need to cut that in half. Is 256 the total number of EM residencies in the United States? Yeah, I just started with uh, all of them and uh, cut out everything on the West Coast. (laughs) 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 I have to move on, guys. I have my my outline here says, how is everyone? Small talk. The small talk is over now. Now it's time for something remotely academic. Both you, Abby, and Nate sent me that video of a swordfish in someone's thigh. And it's fake. It's from like a TV show and they're getting ready. to. Yeah. It's also, by the way, guys, it's a blue marlin. It's not a swordfish exactly. It's a blue marlin. I learned that from Animal Crossing. And I'd just like to read two things. It's a journal club cast. So I wanted to bring two articles to you guys. This is from the Journal of Neurosurgery. The title of the article is Backstabbing Swordfish, a Rare Cause of Traumatic Hemiparesis. And the first sentence is, swordfish attacks on humans are uncommon. (laughs) Okay. And I just, I, I went down this rabbit hole, which wasn't very deep, by the way. And so I found a second case report in 2007 in the Asian Journal of Surgery that's titled Swordfish Attack, Death by Penetrating Head Injury. Let me just read this to you real quick. There have been very few reports of swordfish attacks. That's always their opening sentence on humans, and none have resulted in death until now. That, that's not actually in there. I put that in there. Although there have been no reports of unprovoked attacks on humans, swordfishes can be very dangerous when provoked, and they can jump and use their swords to pierce the target. We describe here an unusual case of death that resulted from intracranial penetrating injury caused by a swordfish. In that first article that I talked about, by the way, it was a fisherman in the water. I don't know why he was in the water. And then got hit in the back by something and was like, I don't know what that is, but I can't swim anymore for some reason. It's kind of one of those things where that walks into your walk, swims into your ER. And you're just like, ah, we have to write it up, don't That's we? Right. Like, <laughs> when the attending stops and is like, 
you should write that up. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to go through the format. So Abby, you're going to walk us through a case that you either had or you made up. And then me and Kyle are going to try and get through it without uh, losing our dignity or honor. And hopefully at the end, the patient will be alive and all this will end really well. I have all the faith in the world that you guys will do fine. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, as always, I like spelling out our goals here. And they are to, uh, one, to learn at least one new thing. Two, for that thing to be about emergency medicine, which isn't very hard. And number three, to have a little bit of fun while we do this. It's case time, Abby. You have the floor. Tell us your case. Excellent. Okay, boys and girls. Um, so you are working in the emergency department and your next patient is a 67-year-old gentleman with a chief complaint of abdominal pain. Go. EKG. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> EKG's fine. When did it start? Sure. So this is in the evening. Uh, and so he says, uh, I was eating breakfast this morning and after I finished, I just like my stomach really hurt. And then like the rest of the day, it kind of kept hurting and didn't really get any better. Um, so I decided to come in tonight. Where in your stomach? Uh, and then he just kind of generally points to like the upper part. So this has been happening since the morning? Yes. What did he have for breakfast? Like toast and sausage. Creative breakfast. Any nausea or vomiting? No vomiting, but he has felt a little nauseated throughout the day. What does the pain feel like? It's a pretty severe kind of sharp pain. Everywhere? Like he, he doesn't generalize it in or localize it anywhere? Yeah, I mean, he points to the upper part of his stomach and he says it kind of hurts over here on the right side too. Any medical history? Yeah, he has CLL and is on chemotherapy, but he actually has no other chronic medical conditions. How old is he? 67. Nice. Well, except for the CLL. Does he take any other medications besides the chemo he's on? Nope, just the chemo. Does he smoke at all? No, he does not smoke. Does he drink? Yeah, I've always kind of done a lot of drinking and then like during quarantine, it's picked up a little bit. So like I'm having like three glasses of wine a night every day of the week. But, you know, I'm starting a new chemotherapy treatment next week. So I actually stopped drinking abruptly three days ago. Is he actively ceasing? <laughs> <laughs> No, he's in fact resting comfortably on the bed. Right, well, that's good. And is not actively seizing. Any change in his bowel mo or if he's had a bowel movement since this morning? No, nothing nothing strange is happening. I think he he did have a bowel movement this morning. It was normal. And you said no nausea or vomiting? Nausea, but no vomiting. Okay. Any fever? No, he's afebrile, and his other vital signs are stable. Any back pain? Now that you ask, yeah, I guess I, I guess it does kind of hurt in my back. Where? Like the middle. Any chest pain? No, no chest pain. Trouble breathing? None at all. What do you think it is, Kyle? I mean, there's like so many things. Triple you know, A, gallstone, pancreas, ulcer, gastritis, GERD. <laughs> there's a long list of things. <laughs> Can I poke his stomach now? Of course you may. So it's soft and non-descended. It's kind of diffusely tender acutely tender when you palpate the epigastrum and right upper quadrant both. And vital signs are normal? Vital signs are normal. Does he have positive or negative Murphy's sign? 
I, I didn't do it on my exam, but I had seen him after he left the emergency room. But uh, I suppose he would have a positive Murphy sign. Apologies, we made a slight error. The patient actually had a negative Murphy's sign. Oh, now that I think about no, well, yeah, sure. We'll say he has a negative <laughs> Murphy sign. The patient is changing his mind about whether he has a positive physical exam finding. Any peritoneal signs? like? Uh, no, not peritoneal at all. So what would you like to do? Is there anything else physically that we can do? I feel like nothing is going to help at this point, really. We have vitals. We have a good abdominal exam. Yeah. Workup time? Workup time. What would you like to know? CBC, CMP, lipase. LFTs. Sure. CBC is normal. He does not have an elevated white count. He's not anemic and his platelets are fine. His lights are fine and you, the LFTs are included, I believe, on the CMP. So his a AST and ALT are both in the 200s. His T-billy is 4 direct 2.7 lipase over 3000 what's this alcophos it's also elevated it was 140 something all right do you want any other labs armand not at this moment no let's go to the imaging right upper quadrant ultrasound yeah is that your final answer right upper quadrant ultrasound oh you're gonna make us choose no i just was wondering if kyle looked like he was gonna say something i want one of those as well Okay, so you do a right upper quadrant ultrasound and there is a 1.6 centimeter gallstone in the gallbladder neck. There is no fluid surrounding the gallbladder. The gallbladder wall is of normal thickness. The common bile duct is three millimeters, which is normal. And you can't visualize a stone in the common bile duct. Okay, so common bile duct, not dilated stone in the cystic neck. Yeah, it's, it's still in the gallbladder. Yeah, it's in the, yeah, the gallbladder neck. And it's huge. It's 1.6 centimeters. So he has evidence of cholelithiasis, no common bile duct dilation that you can see. But it's, he doesn't have necessarily cholecystitis because the gallbladder wall is normal and there's no fluid. You're so kind, Abby. You're so welcome. Thank I you. give you an interpretation. Shame on me. His lipase is super elevated, though. It is, yeah. I would imagine that we need to do a CT for that. Okay. What kind of CT would you like? CT with contrast. Of what part of the body, Armand? Oh, that's that's what you meant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the abdomen, CT abdomen. They do a CT abdomen. All you can see is the same 1.6 centimeter stone in the gallbladder neck. Does not visualize any stones in the common bile duct. No common bile duct dilatation. And the pancreas is atrophic along the tail, but no acute signs of pancreatitis on this CT image. So no inflammation, fat stranding, swelling of the pancreas, that kind of thing. Okay. So, so far, this guy has a stone in his gallbladder that's not outside of his gallbladder and, and no stones visualized on right upper quadrant uh, ultrasound or CT, but evidence of some pancreatitis some pancreatic necrosis. No necrosis. They called it like some atrophy of the pancreatic tail. They did not call anything necrosis. Okay. All right. Atrophy of the pancreatic tail. So what would you like to do? Call the GI fellow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I think as you're in your future career as an ER doctor, you could probably get a couple things started before you call the GI fellow. Yeah, Kyle. <laughs> oh, and by the way, while we're talking this all over, he throws up. Oh, Let's give him a little GI cocktail. Interesting. Okay, sure. Kyle, what's in the GI cocktail? Yeah. Depends on what you put in it. 
<laughs> nice. You can. I want to give him some peptid viscous lidocaine. Great, you do that, and he throws it up. All right, expected. Can we give him some Zofran? IV Zofran, please. Armand summarized nicely for us. What's what are like their top three differentials at this point in time? What do you think is going on? I mean, it could be biliary colic, pancreatitis. Have we ruled out a triple I guess not. Not technically, no. Well, we got a CT of his abdomen, and we got to write up a quadrant ultrasound. We didn't get a ultrasound of his aorta. Can we have that retroactively done since you were there? <laughs> sure. Let's say that on the CT abdomen, they remarked about all the structures they could visualize and said the aorta was of normal diameter. The lead up to that really made me believe that it was going to be a 180 and this guy was going to have a triple A and we were going to be done. Damn it. <laughs> now I was going to say this guy is throwing up and he's in pain. Oh, let's give him some pain meds. Mm. And we got him some IV Zofran already. Pain meds. Morphine. Just give him some morphine. Sure, let's get So you give him some morphine, that helps his pain. Well, what else is he here for? I mean, if it's pancreatitis, we're just supporting with fluids and some... Is it pancreatitis? I wouldn't think it's acute pancreatitis. Well, let's use this moment to transition into this very nice paper I have for Good you segue. guys. Anytime. So what do you actually need to be able to diagnose pancreatitis? How do we diagnose it? Clinical, right? Like Clinical evidence of it. In elevated lipase. Yeah, there's actually three criteria. So if you use the Atlanta classification of acute pancreatitis, three criteria to diagnose pancreatitis, and you have to have two. So you are correct in saying the characteristic finding of like epigastric abdominal pain is one. Two would be your laboratory findings, lipase or amylase, but it can't just be elevated has to be at least three times the upper limit of normal. What's the upper limit of normal? Well, his is 3,000. It was, it was high. So like if somebody came in with a light pace of like 500, you might be like, eh, 3,000 is very high. And then the third thing you can have is on any kind of imaging evidence of pancreatitis, which is things like inflammation surrounding the pancreas, like there can be some edema, things like that. Atrophy? Uh, no, I don't think that counts. But does he meet two of three criteria? Got that epigastric pain and uh, elevated yeah, lipase. Yeah, so he so. has pancreatitis. Yep. I'm going to have Bella look up the normal lipase value. That sounds like an, ex that that sounds like an excellent idea. He has pancreatitis. So what are the most common causes of pancreatitis in this country? Three glasses of wine a night. Gallstones. Gallstones is number one. Does this guy have gallstones? Yeah. He has a gallstone, yeah. Okay. Do you think gallstones could have caused his pancreatitis? Yeah. Why? Got elevated alkphos. Yeah, elevated alkphos, elevated LFTs. He has elevated Billy, and it's mostly direct. So he has all this evidence that he, he probably at some point in time had a stone in there blocking. We can't see it, right? I told you, like, nothing we did could see the stone, and we couldn't see the common bile duct being dilated, but maybe he passed it. Hmm. So like in the, in the interim of like him getting it, like in the initially in the morning, he passed it and then presented like later with some abdominal pain and in that time it, it's gone. Exactly. And I'll give you a little flash forward. We, if you kept him in the hospital overnight and gave him IV fluids and pain control, you'll notice in the next 24 to 48 hours, his labs downtrend. 
Okay, this is a question that I have. I don't know if you know this, but I remember on Pete's, I was talking with Nina. And on one of her presentations, she was like, we can DC the pancreatitis labs, like trending the lipase because we don't do that. Yes, yes. When I, I'm sorry, I should have been clearer. When I say his labs downtrended, I mean his ALKFOS, his LFTs, and his Billy. We do not okay. trend the lipase, you are correct, because we know that like, no matter, I mean, if a lipase is elevated, it's elevated. And that tells you they have an elevated lipase, right? The extent to which it's elevated means nothing. Like if it's basically like a yes or no. Um, so like the higher it is, doesn't mean the pancreatitis is worse. And you know, it's elevated. The pancreas has gone undergone some kind of insult and it, it's like inflamed. So there's no point in trending it because what do we this is another excellent point in this paper. What do we use as a sign that someone's pancreatitis is getting better? Hint, it's not their lipase. I want to say it's their appetite. That's absolutely correct. Oh my God. So it's their, it's Take their, that, Kyle. It's their clinical, it's their clinical improvement. Are they feeling better? Are they hungry? Are they not throwing everything up? Wait, hold on. This guy wasn't actually throw, like throwing up to begin with. He was just nauseous. He came in, he started throwing up in the ED. Yep. And he kept throwing up. But he got, so he got admitted to the hospital. He did? Okay. Because are what are, how do we, how do we treat, what? Yes, Armand, like, would you like to send him home? morphine needs at home. Enjoy. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So we talked about how the, the most common etiology of pancreatitis is gallstones. Other things that you brought up are alcohol use and what other kinds of things can cause pancreatitis. Don't say it. What? No, let's do something slightly more common. Scorpion stings. Scorpion stings. I, I want. I want it to. <laughs> so, <laughs> what would be like stings. this? Yeah, so that'd uh, be like number three. Mm-hmm. Medications. We could do it right. We could hurt their pancreas somehow. Medications could do it, and then trauma. Trauma can do it, and then in up to like a startling percentage, up to date quotes twenty five to thirty percent. It's actually idiopathic, and they have no known cause. We talked about how to diagnose pancreatitis, and you have to hit two of three criteria. Then there's this classification system for mild, moderate, and severe pancreatitis. Now, there are several clinical decision rules. The one that comes to mind is Ransom's criteria, which is actually very old. It's made in the 1970s based off of a study of a bunch of um, British white dudes who drank a lot of alcohol. And, and then there's also other scores. There's the Apache 2 score, and there's another one that I can't remember the name of off the top of my head. Um, but actually, the most recent guidelines for classifying pancreatitis don't necessarily use any of those clinical decision rules. Basically, they say that mild acute pancreatitis has no signs of organ failure, local or systemic complications, which I will detail in a moment. Moderate, moderately severe acute pancreatitis is organ failure that resolves within 48 hours and or local or systemic complications without persistent organ failure. And severe acute pancreatitis is persistent acute organ failure greater than 48 hours. Does, does this classification mean anything like do you change your treatment of a person based on like what like why does it matter that it's mild moderate or severe i think it is comes up to the level of monitoring so if you have so it's kind of similar to like using the clinical decision rule like if you had somebody that scored really high on a clinical decision rule you'd say oh this person is high risk for having basically bad outcomes or bad like for things to hit the fan quickly and so you'd say oh let's you know, put this somewhere and somewhere where they'll get monitored a little bit more frequently than once every 
four to six hours. Gotcha. You can swear, by the way. Oh, can I? Is this not G? Yeah, I, I replace all the uh, swearing with video game noises. Oh, great. So per- perhaps more swearing is better then. Think of, so tell me some of the things that you can think of that would signify like acute organ failure and pancreatitis, perhaps some things that come to mind immediately. ARDS. Yep. So you can have ARDS. You can also have renal failure, acute <laughs> renal failure, and then you can also just like tank your pressures. So those are some of the organ failure criteria when you're classifying the types of pancreatitis. So somebody has signs of those things that would upgrade their status as well as the local complications of acute pancreatitis, which are what? Pseudocysts. Yeah, pseudocysts, fluid collections, necrosis, those kinds of things. Those are your um, definitions. And then there's a lot of recommendations when it comes to pancreatitis. One I'd like to highlight because it's kind of relevant in this guy. So there's a strong recommendation to do ultrasound in all people who present with pancreatitis to look for gallstones. The gallstones was the cause of this guy's pancreatitis, we think, but that's actually a strong um, recommendation. And actually in this guy, we ended up doing another study, um, which is the next recommendation if you cannot see an obstructing stone on an ultrasound. Thoughts? Yeah, this is what tripped me up. So what would we do next? Like if we said, oh, we can't see an obstructing stone, which... The ultrasound cannot always see the stone. It typically sees the bile duct dilation, but doesn't always see the stone. So what might you do next to look at the biliary tree? ERCP or MRCP, whichever you want. Which one? MRCP. Don't want to bring him to the OR. MRCP is correct. <laughs> yeah. Give him pancreatitis with your ERCP. Give him yeah. a double dose of pancreatitis. Enjoy. <laughs> In this guy, we did an MRCP and an MRI. This is a fun one for me. So so basically they say, if you do an ultrasound on someone because you suspect gallstone pancreatitis, cannot find an obstructing stone and the common bile duct is not dilated, you can move to MRCP because then it gives you like a really nice, because CT imaging is like not good for the biliary tree. The MRCP is lovely and shows you a lot. Well, they got it in real life. They got a CT2 Armand. Don't worry. It just like didn't tell us anything new. And so the MRCP gives you like a really nice visualization of the biliary tree. Now, when should you do an ERCP? If you know there's a stone there and you want to go take it out. Exactly. Exactly. So in this guy, we had like, you know, no strong evidence. There was a stone that needed to be taken out. So no ERCP for our friend. And then, so they do an MRCP with an MRI because then the MRI gets a really nice look at the pancreas. And then the only other one that's probably really important to talk about is that they recommend using the Apache score, which is a clinical decision rule you can find on MDCalc. I think they're- Sounds so cool. I think the reason they prefer it is because, so in the original Ransom criteria, you actually need 48 hours worth of data to be able to calculate a score. Because there's like five criteria or something like that in the, in the initial admission, and then 48 hours later, another five things. So it requires like time, whereas the Apache 2 score is all information you can get off of the initial hospitalization, the initial admission to be able to calculate, you know, what is the severity of this or what is the likelihood this person will have complications due to their pancreatitis. So do you think people in the ED use the Apache score more just because it's... That's a good the criteria. I mean, that's a good question. So there are some papers basically comparing the like three or four different kinds 
of clinical decision rules for pancreatitis. And I think they all work about as well as the others. Okay. So at least from what I could find in my own reading today. Um, so this guideline in this, this most recent set of guidelines recommends basically calculating the Apache 2 score um, daily for the first 72 hours of admission just to track their progress. So then the last thing about our friend here is what, besides just supporting him with IV fluids and pain control, what are we going to do for him? Because we can't cure his pancreatitis, right? We can support him until his pancreatitis goes away on its own. We can consult surgery and ask if they want to take his gallbladder out. That is absolutely correct. Because what caused his pancreatitis? A gallstone. How do we get rid of gallstones? We get rid of the gallbladder, right? There's actually an interesting, they've done some studies to show that taking the gallbladder out during the indexed hospitalization for gallstone pancreatitis is better rather than sending someone home and taking their gallbladder out at a later date. Funny story, uh, this patient got discharged without his gallbladder getting taken out and then came back 24 hours later with the same symptoms and his labs had gone back up, his LFTs, his billy, and his um, LFTs, his billy. basically all those things went back up. <laughs> I'm just imagining walking back into the waiting room. Be like, oh, hey. I'm like, back. hey, can you get rid of this, please? Okay. Tried to do it the first time. I can't do it. You have to do yeah. it. So during index hospitalization for gallstone pancreatitis, the recommendation is just to take the gallbladder out. And then last thing that's a bit interesting that Armand brought up previously is about nutrition and feeding in pancreatitis patients. Because typically you'd say, oh, NPO, IV fluids, and pain control, right? And there's actually good data to suggest that the earlier you allow people to eat, the better. And oh. it's all, like, as you said, gauged off of their appetite. So as they start to feel better and feel like they could, they basically self-advance a diet. And they've kind of shown that, like, people just tend to do better. And enteral feeding is always better than parenteral feeding in even um, severe pancreatitis. So you just lay it out all in front of them. Let them choose. Eat whatever you want. Yeah. And that is the management of pancreatitis. Those are our fun things about our dude. So basically he came back to the hospital 24 hours later uh, with the same symptoms and surgery was like, oh, I guess we'll take out your gallbladder now. And then he got his gallbladder taken out and he's doing very well. Well, that's great. As you take your swig of cidre. Et voila. Don't get pancreatitis. I won't. I will not. So, any any questions? Anything you'd like me to clarify? I have an answer for Armand. The yeah. upper limit of lipase is one sixty. Okay. Dude, you're supposed to let Bella do that. Oh, Bella. Yeah. Otherwise, she's literally just sitting in the recording booth, right. pressing the record button. That's it. Cut that. Part ask out. now. You have to ask Bella a different question. Cut that part out. Um, I'm not Bella, gonna cut that part out. Bella texted me and said um, that the upper level of lipase is one sixty. She doesn't have thumbs, dude. Yeah, I know. It was really impressive that she texted me. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and sorry. One more fun fact. This is not in this paper, actually, but um, one of the GI fellows mentioned it to me today. Apparently, as far as um, fluid resuscitation and pancreatitis, there's actually data to show that lactated ringers are superior to normal saline. So resuscitate your pancreatitis patients with LR, please. I think there's just like a big push to go to LR over normal saline in general. Like I haven't actually seen a bag of normal saline hug in a little uh, hunk in a little while. Mm. Yeah, it's been like a, a couple months now since I've seen anybody be like, "Oh yeah, let's get the normal saline." 
I saw somebody like poke a poke a bag full of holes for some irrigation, and that was it. <laughs> like, that's what it was good for. You, Although I think there's actually data or like um, research out there to show like that's also a bad idea, and you should use just regular tap water or whatever. You can use that too. That's for a, a different episode. To irrigate. Irrigate mm-hmm. wounds, yeah. That's because, see, guys, I'm on my acute uh, wound care management elective right now, uh, which has been canceled. Yeah, I was going to say, do they let you do that? Because I'm also supposed to be on my acute wound care elective right now. Nope, I'm on my, uh, I have nothing to do for four weeks elective. Oh, you took a vacation for it? Yeah, well, I mean, our elective thing came down significantly. Our elective requirement came down significantly. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take these four weeks and do this. Well, you know what? If I had taken the four weeks, I wouldn't have had the pleasure to take care of this lovely gentleman who was the inspiration for this case for this podcast. So That's right, everybody. There's the lesson. If you have um, possible vacation time, don't take it. No, Work no that's a lie. No, yeah. it's false. <laughs> <laughs> As Adam Monday would say. Learning tonight was fun. And I'm going to put the um, the more you know sound in here every single time we do <laughs> one of those. Two things that I'm definitely going to take away from this are pancreatitis, gallstones. They don't actually have to be there. You don't actually have to see them in that, in that uh, common bile duct at all. They could have passed. And um, the second thing, just let people eat when they want. Look at that. Kyle, what did you learn? I learned, um, I actually did not know that are they eating now is how we determine if they're getting better. I want to just poke on their stomach and be like, hey, does this hurt? <laughs> no? Cool. Go home. Well, it's just like yeah. any anything else, right? If they can't PO, they can't leave the hospital. Yeah. That and the, I didn't know the ransom criteria needed 48 hours of data. I thought it was just like, oh, is this person more likely to wind up in the ICU or dead? Yeah, I like... I'm going to have Bella look up the uh, Apache 2. That just sounds awesome. Yes, it does, Armin. Producer Bella here. The Apache 2 score estimates ICU mortality based on a number of criteria. In a 2018 study in gastroenterology report, Kumar and Gry1 showed that Apache 2 was second only to the modified computed tomography severity index in 50 patients with acute pancreatitis. Good job, Bella. Okay, guys, that was fun. I would like to thank you guys, Kyle, Abby, thank you so much. I'd also like to thank our producer, Bella, for answering all the questions that we had and texting Kyle with no thumbs. Guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, just one friend, and then leave us a nice review on iTunes is what I've heard people on other podcasts say. If you, the listener, have any questions and or have an article that you want us to look at, please email us at emjccast at gmail.com. Team. I am recruiting you guys to our naming committee so that we can have a better name than Emergency Medicine Journal Club Podcast because one, that's so long and it's just too many words I stumble on. And two, because apparently Emergency Medicine Journal Club cast or what, like a podcast already exists that has that name, but they've stopped recording. So uh, we're here to pick up the reins, but we just need a cooler name. So if you have a cooler name, please send us an email, emjccast at gmail.com. Hopefully I can change that at some point. Help make Armon an easier podcast intro. That's a great name, Kyle. Abby, I know who we're not going to invite to the next podcast. <laughs> is it is it Kyle or is it me? Why would I say that to you? I don't know, Armon. Do you guys have anything else you want to say? <laughs> if you're interested in reading these uh, guidelines for yourself, 
Uh, in case anyone out there didn't catch everything we talked about, this is the 2016 clinical practice guidelines for the management of acute pancreatitis. You can just Google it and find it. It's very easy. All right, guys. It was nice talking to you. I learned a lot today. Thank you, Abby. Anytime, man. All right. Roll out, Autobots. <laughs> Okay, bye. <laughs>